Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to see you all here. My name is Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the LSC, and I'd like to welcome you this evening to the 13th LSE Health and Social Care Annual Lecture. LSE Health and Social Care was founded in 2000. It brings together four distinct research programs in the general area of health and social policy, social care policy, and now employs 70 researchers, as well as providing an umbrella structure for 60 LSE <coughs> academics and a large number of PhD students working in relevant areas. Under its co-directors, Professor Martin Knapp and Professor Elias Mosialos, LSE Health and Social Care has established itself as an internationally leading center for research into health and long-term care policy. It was awarded the Queen's Anniversary Prize in 2009, and I quote, for applying research to the advancement of global health and social care policy. The citation noted in particular the center's success in bridging the gap between research and policy. Since the foundation of LSE Health and Social Care, Professor Julian Legrand has served as chair of the center's management group. He steps down at the end of this month, and I would like to take this opportunity to add my thanks to that of his colleagues for his service. And I mean that, Julian, thank you. <laughs> this year's LSE Health and Social Care annual lecture will be delivered by Professor David Nutt. Professor Nutt is Edmund J. Straffa, Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College and a consultant psychiatrist in the Central and Northwest London Mental Health Trust, where he conducts research into the brain mechanisms of addiction and the effects of drugs on brain function. He was chair of the advisory committee on the misuse of drugs until 2010 and is now the chair of the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs a charitable group that aims to provide evidence about the effects of drug use. He may perhaps, if you ask him, enlighten you about the relationship and the difference between an advisory committee and an independent scientific committee. <laughs> Professor Nutt received his undergraduate training in medicine at Cambridge and Guy's Hospital and continued training in neurology. After completing his psychiatric training in Oxford, he continued there as a lecturer and later as a welcome senior fellow. He then spent two years as chief of the section of clinical science in the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the National Institutes of Health of the USA. On returning to England in 1988, he set up the psychopharmacology unit in Bristol University, an interdisciplinary research group spanning the departments of psychiatry and pharmacology before moving to Imperial College. Actually, I believe he was consigned there I don't know what he did wrong, but they made him dean and, and um, caused him, um, I'm sure, no amount of suffering as a result. Um, we need to move to Imperial College in December 2008, where he leads a similar group with a particular focus on brain imaging. There will be a reception on the fifth floor following the lecture, and Professor Nutt will be available to sign copies of his book. For those of you on Twitter, the suggested hashtag for this event is hash LSENutt, now, I have the pleasure to introduce Professor David Nutt to ask, how can we improve UK drug and alcohol policy? David, thanks. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. In fact, the ISCD, the new charity, was set up across the road because it was set up by the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies in King's College, which 
had its buildings just in the uh, the old witch building across the road. So it's nice to be here. I've seen this, but seen the outside of this a lot. It's nice to be inside. And thanks very much for the invite. So, um, and we're happy to remind you that it's not part of King's College. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll start off with the uh, just this caricature of my <laughs> sacking um, and the government health warning. Uh, and as as many caricatures, they really get to the nub of the issue, which is the bottom left-hand corner and the, um, the, the relationship, the comparative harms of on the, on the left-hand side, beer and fags, and on the right-hand side in those uh, little plastic uh, bags, some green-looking chemicals. And uh, I don't know what those green chemicals are, and nor, did, nor did the caricaturist. In fact, one of the problems is that no one does, really. But I, w- I would argue, and the reason I got sacked was because I argued that beer and fags are likely to be more harmful than other things, and I'll show you the evidence for that in a minute. Uh, But this front page is rather fascinating, because just by complete coincidence, Andre Agassi's new book was published that week, and some of you won't know who Agassi was a tennis player, a very good tennis player. (laughs) He won Wimbledon, and when he was the Wimbledon champion, which meant effectively the number one player in the world, he tested positive for a drug called methyl amphetamine, which the Americans call crystal meth. And, uh, and the rules of the tennis authorities are that you uh, would get a minimum a ban of, for a minimum of two years or maybe a lifetime ban for taking that substance or pretty much any other substance it was illegal. Now, you may wonder why a non-performance-enhancing drug would incur such a severe penalties, and that's perhaps a topic for discussion. But nevertheless, that presented them with a severe challenge. Because if you take away the top person in any sport, it creates considerable consternation and, and also possibly a loss of a lot of money. So the tennis authorities did what I thought was a very British thing. They said uh, they decided to ask Andre to tell the truth. Andre, did you actually take crystal meth? And he said, of course not. Your test must be rubbish. And they breathed the sigh oh, thank goodness. Now go away. And, 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 uh, and be a good boy and play more tennis and throw away that B sample quickly. And, um, and he went on and he played tennis. He won some more majors. And then 15 years later, when he's writing his biography, he decides to come clean. And I don't know why he came clean. Um, maybe the guilt for lying all those years? I, I can't suspect not. Um, I think it was probably the publisher said, well, you know, there's another couple of million dollars if you tell the truth about drugs. And so he told the truth. And... What's interesting is not that he took drugs or that he told the truth about drugs, but that, that's enough to get him on the front page. And, and that really sums up the peculiar tensions we have in relation to, to drugs. We have extremely, extremely tough laws which can destroy someone's career, uh, but we also have facets of non-implementation of the law. If you're t- too important, you may not get convicted. And, uh, and yet, as a public... You know, we're fascinated by people who break the law in relation to drugs. And I want to use that, those, um, that ambivalence as part of uh, sort of the underpinning theme of the talk today. So what is a drug? Well, there are many definitions. Since you're not scientists, I'm going to go to the heart of the matter. A drug is something a politician once used but now regrets. And um, some of you will have heard Jackie Smith on the radio on Five Live last week. Any of you hear her program on, on uh, cannabis? It's fascinating. No one, no one seems to listen to the radio anymore. Or maybe it's, it was 10.30 at night, you're all in beds because you're students, yes. Um, anyway, she was arguing with me and other people about her, 
her decision to classify cannabis from C to B. But when she became Home Secretary, she was asked the question, did you take drugs? And she said, well, I smoked cannabis, but I didn't enjoy it. And it kind of begs the question of why bother, but uh, I think it was that's what you had to do to get into the Labour Party in Oxford at the time, I'm not sure. And David Cameron said, I did things when young that I shouldn't have. We all did. And um, the all, of course, is the royal all. It's the Tory front bench, because they were all together in Eton and Oxford. And, uh, and what's interesting, of course, is though he won't tell us what he did, we know what he did. He did a number of drugs, and they all began with the same letter as his surname. Now, there are politicians who actually take a, a much more honest approach, and that's why Boris is so beloved of everyone. <laughs> this is an outrageous slur, of course, I've taken drugs. And I think that's... Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that's true. <laughs> The really interesting question is, when did he stop, or has he stopped? I don't know. Now, I guess most of you are economists, and you understand the power of advertising. And this is the most important slide. This is what the drinks industry wants you to believe. Say no to drugs. That way you'll have more time to drink. And the fact that that can exist... Uh, in, a, in a sensible society where everyone should know that alcohol is a drug, is a, as I say, it's a testimony to the amazing power that the drinks industry have in warping the way people think about the world. And we did a television program about four years ago. I did a program for Horizon called Britain's Top 20 Drugs. And we went out into the street and we asked people, is alcohol a drug? And they'd look at you and say, no, of course not. And you'd say to them, well, but, you know, you take it because you like it. It must change your brain, make you feel good. But then you might get unsteady and fall over, and then you might get a hangover the next day. That all sounds like a drug in the brain, don't you think? And they look at you again and say, are you mad? If it, alcohol was a drug, it would be illegal. And the reason it's not illegal is uh, complicated and historic. But one, one of the reasons it's staying legal is because the drinks industry is extraordinarily efficient at making people believe that alcohol is not a drug. In fact, they're better. They don't eat. It's not simply that they make you believe it's not a drug. They actually make you think it's good for you. And they have kind of completely inverted the whole concept of the, the, uh, the, the limits, the safe limits of alcohol, and they've turned that now into a necessary intake in order to gain health benefits, which, have, which is a, a most remarkable lie. But, again, a fantastic testimony both to the power of, their, of that industry, which spends about $80 million a year on advertising. The Department of Health spends about 8000 uh, advertising the harms of alcohol. But also to the fact that alcohol is a drug that you all know and love. Most of you drink. Many of you are addicted to it. And most of you don't realize you're addicted to it, those of you who are. Now, drug control in this country is complicated, more than in most countries, because we divide up drug control between two major government acts, the Medicines Act, which is controlled by the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Authority, MHRA, and the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is a part of the Home Office, which looks after recreational drugs. We have other drugs. We have on the right-hand side there, cat and coffee. They're two stimulants, two culturally sanctioned stimulants. One hopes they stay that way. And they're unregulated, but they attract um, sales tax or VAT. On the left-hand side here, we have drugs which are also available outside those two acts, alcohol and tobacco and solvents. They're regulated by place of sale to some extent, by age in which you can buy them, and by taxation. And one of the problems with the current control is that drugs 
Many drugs fall into both acts. So most of the recreational drugs that we're going to be talking about are um, also medicines. So they straddle the two acts, and that creates considerable difficulties. And as I say, most countries in the world have decided to have one act, which is around medicines, and treat all drugs as medicines. But we still pursue this uh, old idea that the law might have some relevance in relation to these so-called recreational drugs. And the law controlling drugs is the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. And it was actually quite a clever piece of legislation. It was brought in by Jim Callaghan when he was Home Secretary. And it was designed to do what the Institute of Fiscal Studies is designed to do for decision-making on economic policy. Because Callaghan understood that drugs are too important a topic to be left to the politicians. If you leave decision-making about drugs to politicians, they will inevitably fight to be harder on drugs. And he thought that would be bringing injustice. So they created this model where decision-making about drugs is taken out of government and given to this expert body called the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And drugs were then put into the, um, the Act, and the position of the drugs in the Act could change according to whether the drugs were seen as more or less harmful as evidence changed over time. And, and that was actually, as I say, a remarkably sensible piece of legislation. The class of the Act determines the penalties, so if you're possessing a Class A drug, you can go to prison for up to seven years for possession, up to life for dealing and supply and it's proportionately less. And you might say, well, it, why is it proportionately less for possession but not for supply? Why is it 14 years for supply of a Class C drug? Uh, why is that the same as the Class B? And that's because when cannabis was downgraded in 2004 from A and B to C, the government was very worried. So it allowed the downgrading, but it upped the penalties for supply to 14 years from 7. The Act is a complicated Act because... As I said, some of the drugs are medicines and that can be prescribed, and some of them used to be medicines, and some of them have never been medicines. So the, the prescribability is determined by the schedules. So the green boxes are the schedules which can be prescribed, and then the others are well, either not, been prescribed, not, not currently prescribed or never been prescribed. And what you see on that is uh, a series of arrows. Now, the black arrows are decisions that were made by the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, and the white arrows are decisions which were made by the government against the advice of the uh, advisory council. And the dotted, the dotted line with MDMA was a government rejecting the advice of the ACMD to downgrade MDMA. And it's obvious when you look at that that all the arrows go in one direction, i.e. in or up, with one exception, which is cannabis. And cannabis, as I said, went down. It used to be either A or B, depending on the formulation. It went down to C in 2004. So that's the only drug which has found a new home in the Misuse of Drugs Act by being downgraded. And that's kind of strange, really, because you'd think that, you know, as evidence developed over the subsequent 30, 40 years of the Act, that other drugs might have moved position. But it became very clear, and I worked on the ACMD for, for 10 years, that governments were not interested in any downgrading of the drug. So even though the, this was supposedly an independent committee, there was enormous government pressure not to be seen to be weak on drugs, not to be giving the wrong message, i.e. a drug was less harmful than we used to think. And that was a bit of a problem, and that was actually one of the reasons I got sacked, because I argued vehemently that the reclassification of cannabis from C to B was actually arbitrary wrong, and worse than that was actually based on 
uh, really rather petty political principles rather than based on evidence. But I'll come, to, I'll come back to that a little bit later. I want you to focus on the bottom here, the bottom white arrow. Now, that is a very strange arrow, an arrow that is relating to mushrooms, magic mushrooms. And magic mushrooms were legal in this country until 2004. And then uh, some people in the Netherlands discovered a way of freeze-drying them. So instead of having to go to the Welsh mountains to pick them and eat them, you could go into Camden and buy them freeze-dried. And that created a great deal of hysteria in the Daily Mail. And, and they then goaded the Tory party into um, goading the government. And the government decided then to reclassify mushrooms from being legal to being a Class A drug alongside crack cocaine. Um, so that's quite a big change, a big leap from nothing to the Class A. And we heard the government were doing this, and, uh, and, and the ACMD did, and we wrote to the Prime Minister and said, look, you do realise there's a thing called the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is a statutory instrument. You're not allowed to make decisions about drugs without going through the advisory council. And there was a silence for a few weeks. And then on a Tuesday afternoon, we got an email from the Home Office saying, well, we're going to have a vote in the House on Thursday. Um, what do you think about that? And we said... You know, that's an insult. You can't do a proper assessment of the harms of a drug in 36 hours. So, you know, you're just going to break the law. Well, go ahead and do it. And, of course, at that time, we hadn't fully understood that that actually didn't matter to the government because it's only with hindsight that it became clear that law-breaking was actually something that the last Labour government was actually rather pleased to do. In fact, it was almost an obsession with them. And... Uh, the decision to make mushrooms Class A was part of Tony Blair's war on drugs, which was a, a war that was set up secretly. He had a kitchen cabinet um, comprising of defence, police and customs staff. And he decided to wage a war on drugs independent of the ACMD. And I think it came from the fact that he, he was rather enthused with his war in Iraq and the successes there. And he clearly didn't care about evidence. You know, you didn't need weapons of mass destruction, you could just lie about them. So this was part of the policy. And, and of course, one of the interesting things about war is that war changes the way people think. And um, it also completely changes uh, people's attitude to the truth. And as some of you will have heard, there are very classic adages about war. The first casualty of war is the truth, which was that mushrooms are highly dangerous, class A, and that cannabis is very dangerous, class B. And there's also this other adage, once it war, all reason is treason. And I think that's why I was sacked. And in fact, that's exactly that's what Johnson said when he sacked me. He's, because he said, I was continually objecting to government policy. And I was objecting because government policy was clearly not based on evidence and therefore was leading to injustice. But in fact, I hadn't realised we were fighting a war and I was being treasonous. And I suppose the good news is that I'm not, um, I'm not in the USA, otherwise I'd be naked in a cell and <laughs> wondering if I was going to be executed. And the new Labour legacy on drugs was actually quite terrifying. So essentially, when, the, when cannabis was downgraded from, from B to C, as part of this Blair War, they decided to incentivise the police to stop people using cannabis. And the police are very easy to incentivize. You essentially give them more money if they make more arrests. And arresting people for possessing of cannabis is actually 
It's the easiest crime in, in the world because all you do is you do what they did, which is you stand around tube stations on the northern line, both north and south, and any young man that comes out, you stop him, search him, and then arrest him because he's got... And this was actually completely in breach of human rights, but it happened, and, uh, and you can see they were very successful. They managed to double the number of convictions for cannabis possession in the space of four years. As I say, almost certainly illegal in terms of human rights, but effective in terms of achieving what the government thought it was going to achieve, which was penalizing cannabis users. Of course, as with many arbitrary laws, there's a, a huge imbalance, an ethnic imbalance, in terms of the people who are victims of that law, with up to six times as many uh, Afri Afro-Caribbeans and blacks being arrested than whites, despite relatively similar levels of cannabis use. So, you know, a disgusting piece of legislation that ended up, to some extent, contributing to the riots last year because our new police commissioner decided he was going to start again on cannabis users in North London, which created some of the tensions. And the paradox here is that cannabis had been a medicinal drug for 4,000 years. And 100 years ago, the most powerful woman in the, probably in the history of the world, Queen Victoria, I mean, soon to be taken over by Middleton, of course, but at that time, she was the... Um, the most important woman in the world, and, uh, and she was a rather great fan of cannabis. Her physician was a fan of it, and he prescribed it to her for gynecological problems, which, is, which were period pains, uh, pains of childbirth. And I sometimes, in my more mischievous moments, I sometimes think maybe the reason she had so many children was because she used it at other times. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there you have it. You have you know, the, the woman leading the greatest empire the world has ever known, writing eulogies about the benefits of cannabis as a medicine, and apparently surviving to a ripe old age without going psychotic. This is what you have now. This is the new Labour legacy. Uh, there are many examples like this. This is perhaps one of the most unpleasant ones. So this is a woman who emailed me last year. She's a teacher, retired on ill health grounds, multiple sclerosis for years. She's in a wheelchair. She uses cannabis to produce, provide relief. Three times in dawn raids, the police have smashed the door down to find bits of cannabis. And that's what a war allows you to do. The war, a war empowers the police to do that. Actually, if they knocked on the door, she'd have opened it. But it's much more fun to smash a door down than to knock on it. And the interesting thing about her is that if she's arrested again, she must go to prison because she's had three convictions. So her life is totally at the discretion of the local police. At any point, they could send her to prison even though that would cost a huge amount of money to have someone in a wheelchair in prison, but, but the principle is there. And that's atrocious, completely unnecessary, and, and, and a perverse consequence of, a, of, a, of the enforcing of the law on cannabis. But what's even worse is the fact that until 2005, she could have pled in court the defense of necessity. Now, I see a lot of you aren't English, so you probably don't know about the defense of necessity, but probably most English people don't either. But this is an English common law right, that if you are in a situation of extremis, either that your, own, your life is threatened or you are threatened with considerable harm, you can do things which would otherwise be considered illegal to escape from that threat. And as I say, it's been enshrined in English common law for about 600 years. And... In 2005, the law lords removed that, but only for cannabis. 
which means if you are caught, you have to be convicted. And magistrates hate it because there is no, I mean, basically, you don't need magistrates for cannabis anymore because the police bring them in, they get a conviction. There is no defence. You can still plead if you get caught with crack that you were using it for your headaches or your cancer. But for cannabis, you cannot plead that. That's one of the most disgusting pieces of legislation uh, that I think anyone could imagine. Because it's not done to the benefit of anyone other than the, the legal system. Because the government was getting irritated by people using the defense of necessity when they were caught with medicinal cannabis. What's even worse is this. Is it one of the three law lords that brought in that legislation when he was made a law lord in 2002, was, a, was asked the question by Boris Johnson, the editor of The Spectator, so you would legalise cannabis? Lord Bingham said, absolutely. It is stupid having a law which isn't doing what it's there for. And you have to say, to a society where someone can change their mind so utterly in two years, based on no evidence at all, but simply to, to comply with government desires, is not worth the paper it's written on, really, is it? And I have to say, this is truly something that needs to be changed because it, it's, a, it's an offence to humanity. And one of the reasons there's a lot of hysteria about drugs is that there are lots of new drugs. And these are legal highs, drugs like GHB, ketamine, stimulants. A lot of new drugs are coming along, largely because people are trying to get around the uh, somewhat illogical and certainly very harsh penalties of the Misuse of Drugs Act. And one of the key questions that's facing society at present is, are these drugs harmful enough to be banned? Should they be banned? Well, some of them have been banned, and I can say, you know, some of them have been banned on my recommendations, but I'm not totally clear about what is going on now because I think the situation is getting even less clear. And the first thing to say is that these new legal highs have almost no impact currently on the National Health Service or anything. Let me just show you mortality statistics. So the drug which kills most people is tobacco, 80,000 deaths a year, usually in middle age to older men and women. Alcohol kills about 8,000 people a year, usually in younger people, although uh, some people in their middle age. Opiates kill about 1,000 a year. You see we've expanded it on the right. Paracetamol, about 200. Cocaine, about 180. And then um, amphetamines, about 30. Cannabis, maybe 10. Hexacy. 12, 10, virtually no, very, very few deaths from those other drugs. So the big killer is tobacco, followed by alcohol, followed by opiates. And I want to focus a little bit on alcohol now, because what's fascinating about alcohol is that the intake of alcohol in young people hasn't changed in the last 15 years. Going back to 1995, you see that about half of all young people are illegally intoxicated once a month. Half. Government does absolutely nothing about it. And it's that early drinking which is contributing to the massive problems of alcohol we have today. So now alcohol is the most common reason for death in men under the age of 50. It's overtaken road traffic accidents and suicide. And these are graphs which look at the cause of death uh, in relation to different organ systems going back to 1970. So these are standardized mortality rates. The likelihood of any of you dying 
from one of these disorders. So the yellow one's respiratory disease and the green one is cardiovascular disease. You can see all the colours but one go down. Some of them go down to about half or even a third of what they were before. And that's because you're healthier as a, as a, as a population and the medicine's better. So your half is likely to die now as you were 40 years ago of, of pneumonia or lung disease. There's only one organ system which has bucked that trend, and that's the red one, and that's the liver. And you can see liver disease has gone up fivefold. So that's truly a remarkable change in health outcomes, which is leading to the estimate that liver disease will kill more men than heart disease within this decade. 80% of that rise in liver deaths is due to alcohol and 20% is due to hepatitis. And based on those kind of statistics, recently, with the help of Larry Phillips here, who's uh, sitting in the audience, we did a, the most sophisticated analysis of drug harms, looking at the harms for the individual, the harms of society, multi-criteria decision analysis, and we came up with this ranking. And this ranks 20 drugs. Uh, the blue bars, the size of the blue bar is the the relative harm of that drug to the user and the size of the red bar is the harm of that drug to society. And you can see alcohol comes out on top largely because of the size of the red bar. And that's because alcohol is responsible for a large chunk of road traffic accident deaths. It's responsible for the vast majority of violence within the household, child sexual abuse, violence on the streets, and there's also all the other problems in relation to um, the health harms. So alcohol is the most harmful drug in the UK because of the societal harms. The most harmful drug to the individual we reckon was crack cocaine, number three. That's got the biggest, biggest blue bar. So why is the government not doing very much about alcohol? Well, largely because the drinks industry won't let it. Well, we can come back to that later. The drinks industry is extraordinarily effective at putting the fear of drugs into people's minds uh, and denying or minimising the damage from alcohol. So these are two pictures of dead people, dead young people. The one on the right is called Leah Betts. How many of you, how many of you have not seen the Leah Betts picture? So maybe a third of you. Yeah, you're all quite young. It's 20 years old. And the one on the, the left-hand side here is Gavin Britton, who's a, a student from Exeter University. None of you have seen him, have you? So, but Leah Betts is the most famous image of a dying person that's probably ever been in this country. And the story's interesting. She, uh, on her 18th birthday, she took two ecstasy tablets and, uh, and was getting ready for her a party in her house. And she got the tachycardia, the beating heart from, from MDMA. And so she, she'd been told that if you, that MDMA was dangerous because it dehydrated you and you, people died of dehydration. So she started to drink water, and she drank about seven litres of water, and she died of water poisoning. So that's a, I mean, a, a, an avoidable death if she had known that she didn't need to drink that much water, as we know now. And uh, this guy, Gavin, was uh, after a, a golf competition with another university, he got into a drinking game, like many students in university teams do, and he lost the first round, so they made him drink as a forfeit. So he lost the second round, they made him drink as a forfeit. And then he lost his life. And about three young people a week 
in this country simply die of alcohol poisoning, just like him. Why was Leah Betts picture up on billboards all over the country and why is Gavin's not known to anyone? And it's because the drinks industry funded the picture of Leah to be posted all over the country. Because at that time they were terrified that young people were going to switch from alcohol to MDMA and they wanted to really deter people from using this competition. And no one cares about people who die from alcohol poisoning even though as I say there's three a week. In fact, there's only one person, I bet any of you know, public person who's died of alcohol poisoning. And what's fascinating is that most of us don't even, aren't even sure, because it wasn't made that public. So let me make it public now, and that's Amy. Now, Amy died of alcohol poisoning, acute alcohol poisoning. She drank about one and a half bottles of vodka. So it doesn't take a lot to cure yourself. And why isn't she heading up a campaign on posters to warn people about getting very drunk. And that, I think, is a question to which I do not know the answer. We lost a student last year from poisoning of alcohol. It's quite common in most universities. One of the reasons it's not popular is that the newspapers aren't really interested in alcohol because many journalists drink rather a lot. And um, I want to share with you the, the, the way in which the media control what we know about drugs and drug harms. And this is a brilliant thesis done by a guy called Alistair Forsyth, working out of the MRC Health Unit in Glasgow University. He looked at every coroner's case in Scotland in the 1990s. And he looked to see which ones were associated with a drug presence at death, a drug other than alcohol. And it turns out there were 2,255 deaths with some drug present and 546 of those got reported in the newspapers. So he scoured all the newspapers to find out what got reported. One in four deaths got reported. And then he asked the question, is there any uh, relationship between drug and reporting? And he found remarkable imbalances. So there were 265 paracetamol deaths, and almost every one of those will have died of paracetamol poisoning. But only one of them got reported. And there were 48 from diazepams, one in 72 from morphine. Amphetamines, 36 deaths, so maybe 20 people actually died of amphetamines. There, it was, they were much more interested. One in three deaths got reported. Cocaine, only one in eight. Heroin, one in five. Methadone, one in 16. But the drug that always got reported was, of course, ecstasy, MDMA. And what's amazing about the reporting of MDMA deaths is not only that it's almost universal, even the images are used. They're all about twice as big, the pictures of the people, as the deaths from other drugs. So there is a systematic over-representation, over-communication uh, of the harms of ecstasy in the media. And when the ACMD did its review of ecstasy, the one that the government rejected, we, we did it in public, and there were journalists there. And we took the opportunity, I took the opportunity, at the end of the evidence gathering, to ask the journalists the question, why do you have such a fascination with ecstasy deaths? And why don't you care about paracetamol deaths? And they didn't really like being asked that question. Any, any journalists in the audience? Um, they don't like, you know, they, like, they ask the questions, not me. And uh, one of them, the Telegraph guy, reflected, and he said, actually, you know, it's a good question, really. I think the answer is that these are 
white middle-class kids like our kids, and that's why we report it. Well, that's not the basis on which to make drug laws. But it hasn't changed. So here we are, two years ago, three years ago. Mephedrone, MCAT, meow, meow, okay? Dead teen took party drug. This is the son. Fun-loving Gabby Price suffered a cardiac arrest, da-da-da-da. A neighbor claimed she'd taken the clubber's drug, Mephedrone, which can be bought legally, mixed with the illegal drug ketamine. Um, Now... If you go on, on the web and look up methadrone deaths, you'll find Gabby, the first death from methadrone in the UK. In fact, Gabby didn't die of methadrone. She didn't take it at all. She died of bronchopneumonia, um, which is a rather un- unusual death for a, a young girl. And uh, I kind of sometimes wonder whether the emergency services, when they were led to believe she'd taken methadrone by the neighbour, thought, well, she's just a druggie, we'll just leave her in the side of the A&E for a few hours till she sobers up, rather than investigate the fact she had acute bronchopneumonia. And as her mother said, she was branded a druggie, but she was just a little girl who died. And that's one of the reasons why we should tell the truth about drugs. If we mislead people by making assumptions that lifestyles associated with drug use, we can do more harm than good. And the media were determined to get methadone banned. They were determined to find deaths. And... What was interesting was that the police colluded. Do we have any police in the room? Uh, and this, I want to share this as a, a very interesting tale. Um, I was in Barcelona giving a lecture, and um, I got a phone call from CNN, and I, I did an interview across the road in Somerset House with them the two days before about methadrone. And they said, where's Scunthorpe? And I said... Uh, why do you want to go to Scunthorpe? And they said, oh, because the uh, Humberside police have called an international press conference to tell the world about two deaths from methadrone. And I said, that's impossible. You know, there's about, about 400,000 Israeli teenagers have been using methadrone for the last two years and none have died. It's inconceivable that two people would die in Scunthorpe on the same night. But I said, anyway, up the M1, turn right after four hours... Uh, I don't know if they made it. I don't know. <laughs> but if they got there, they would have heard Nick's dad weeping and telling this story. I don't want him labelled a druggie because he wasn't. He was on a night out with friends enjoying himself. A normal, caring, hard-working lad. And of course, that's all true, but for the one word that I have bolded. Because he was a druggie. But his drug was alcohol. And he'd been out, they'd been about six bars, they started drinking about eight o'clock on a Sunday night, they finished at 2 a.m. And then they went off into town and they tried to find something else. And the police thought, although believed indeed, although I don't think they did, that they'd taken methadrone. Uh, And the police could clearly see this was a great way of getting... When have CNN ever been to Scunthorpe before or since? No, but this was a way of getting... And the media went hysterical. Two deaths, got a ban the drug. And they hadn't taken methadrone. They'd actually taken methadone, the opiate substitute. Whether they were so drunk they didn't know the difference, I don't know. But most of the methadrone deaths were actually methadone deaths. And what was sad about this was not only that those two lads died because they were too drunk to to make sensible decisions about drug-taking... 
Well, the government's response was this. Here you have Gordon Brown. We're determined to act to prevent this evil hurting the young people of our country. And they've obviously just got a macro in the Home Office, which was written in about 1916. We've got to stamp out the evil and just put drug in the brackets. And this bizarre rhetoric, which hasn't changed in 100 years, it's kind of embarrassing to think that, you know, well, you know, why do we let them get away with it? There should be at least a proper appraisal. We can't simply say a drug's evil. I mean, you know, how can a, I mean, a, drugs don't have a valence anyway. I mean, it, it's beyond stupid in many ways. So what should we know about a drug before controlling it? This is what the ISCD wrote after the, the methadrone banning. We said, well, there should be some evidence of use, uh, which you think would be pretty obvious, but we now see that the government is trying to ban drugs, even if they're just theoretical agents. They may never have been made. We think there should be some evidence of harms, as according to the 16 criteria we set out. And we'd also like to know that there might be some relationship between the pharmacology of the drug and the harms, which we didn't know from Ephedrine. Now, you wouldn't... I mean, these aren't great asks. They're just a sort of slightly rational approach, but they're beyond the current capacity of the government. And the reason for this is that without science, you're just left in this arbitrary world where politicians make random decisions. And we've got to understand the science of drugs so that the decisions can be credible. But more than that, that the educational messages can be credible. When magic mushrooms were put into Class A alongside crack cocaine, it became impossible to use the Misuse of Drugs Act to teach anyone anything. Because kids would just say, well, it's obviously wrong there, so how do I know it's not wrong everywhere? And, of course, they were right, because it's wrong in many places. So lying to kids is actually the worst thing you can do. And the other problem we have, and this is something that I'm exercised by a lot at present, is that the current approach to controlling drugs is to say that any drug that is not currently a medicine is going to go into a Schedule 1, which is an old relic schedule from the UN 1960 Convention on Drugs, which means you can't research it, or it's almost impossible to research it. And that means we'll never know whether it's harmful, or but worse, we'll never know if it's useful. So let me just talk you through this in relation to methadrone, the most recent example. How harmful should a drug be to be banned? And is use sufficient? I mean, one of the interesting things, after methadrone was banned, naphrone came along, but naphrone is so objectionable that no one was using it. But because it came along, it got banned as well. And there's also this other question, and you as economists must be fascinated by this, so this is where I'm looking for your help. Because people take drugs because they enjoy it. There's pleasure. It's a bit like doing all the other things that businesses sell to people. And uh, we, if we have to think about that as well, because it may be there is some kind of benefit-risk payoff that could be evaluated. And this is my favourite graph. This is what happened to cocaine deaths when methadrone became available. Now, cocaine deaths have increased in this country almost inexorably up to, two, up to the 2007. The government, ACMD, could do nothing about it. And then methadrone arrived, and people switched. And there were 40 fewer deaths on cocaine, almost certainly because people used methadrone, which is less toxic and clean than cocaine. So methadone actually saved lives. If the government had achieved that goal by legalising methadone, they would have, uh, would have been very, very happy and you'd have known all about it. But the fact it happened by the free market 
is something that they're trying to avoid us confronting. Another fascinating benefit was that 1,200 fewer soldiers were kicked out of the army because soldiers like to take cocaine when they finish doing what they do. And they realized that they were tested for cocaine, but they're not tested for methadone, so they switched to methadone. And that saved a lot of money and a lot of careers. And there was also the income from the VAT importing methadone. And now it's gone illegal. What's going to happen? Well, we know the price has gone up threefold. All the money's in the criminal gangs. And there's an increase in crime. And we don't know what's going to happen to the army. Thankfully, they're still not testing for methadone, which is good. Here's another paradoxical benefit. This is one of the reasons Colorado voted last month to make cannabis legal, because they realized that cannabis was actually reducing the harms from alcohol. So even when cannabis was only available on prescription in Colorado, sufficient people switched from alcohol to cannabis that there was a 14% reduction in deaths on the roads from people who were very drunk. So there you are, a paradoxical benefit of taking an illegal drug over a legal one. And in fact, it turns out that many banned drugs have potentials of treatment. Many of them were treatments before they were banned. I've talked to you about cannabis. MDMA was used in psychotherapy, psilocybin to treat cluster headaches, depression, OCD, LSD for terminal illness, alcoholism, ketamine for depression. Amephedrone and naphrone, they were developed as treatments for addiction. And in fact, the public showed they worked. They switched. The cocaine deaths proved that they work. But they've been banned because the government didn't actually even understand why they were, the drugs were made in the first place. And I want to just share with you a couple of insights into this paradoxical unknown benefits. Now, these two people, Francis Crick, having a new institute named but built in North London after him, Kerry Mullis, these are the two most important Nobel Prizes in medicine ever. It changed the face, not only of medicine, but of life sciences and even agriculture. He couldn't work out the X-ray diffraction pictures of this molecule, DNA, he was looking at. They didn't make any sense because no one ever thought you could have a molecule as a double helix. And under LSD, he got the insight to do that. Kerry Mullis got the insight how you decode DNA. So the two great discoveries were made by people taking LSD before it was banned. And I kind of wonder, well, maybe there's a lot of scientific discoveries that haven't yet been made because it has been banned. Maybe the Higgs boson would have been discovered years ago. If... <laughs> and, you know, I think that's a perfectly tenable question, a reasonable question to ask people. Because banning LSD was a completely arbitrary decision based on the CIA's fear that young people weren't going to go to fight in Vietnam. So there was no need to ban LSD. It just happened to be politically expedient. What about magic mushrooms? There they are, growing in the native... Um, woodland. Uh, psilocybin is the active ingredient. Works like LSD on serotonin receptors in the brain. And we decided it was about time someone studied this drug. There'd never been a psilocybin study in Britain. And these 2A receptors are actually fascinating receptors. They regulate a great deal of high-level brain function. So we basically got psilocybin and we gave it to people and we used state-of-the-art cutting-edge imaging technology to see what happened. And the first thing we discovered was completely unpredicted. Because you might think, well, if you start to hallucinate and see funny coloured shapes, that your brain might be turned on. But it wasn't. Now, these are, these are, these are called MRI images of the brain, and, and, and a blue mess, a blue colouring on an image like that means there's less blood flow. And a red means there's more. Well, there's no red. 
It's just blue. So, in fact, all we found was that psilocybin switched off brain activity. Amazing. Because, but it wasn't everywhere in the brain. It was just in certain regions. And the regions it switched off, actually, are the regions which integrate brain function. The parts of the brain which make the brain work together as a unit. Which explains why it causes this psychedelic experience. And in fact, the magnitude of switching off predicted the size of the experience. Now, what was fascinating about that was that one part of the brain that was switched off was the part of the brain which we know from other recent work is overactive in depression. So you see in the, in the, in the yellow circle there, there's a part of the brain which is overactive in depression. Depression, we now know, is not a passive loss of emotion. It's actually the, the brain driving negative emotions to the expense of positive ones. So there's a part of the brain which is overactive, causing depression. And look, psilocybin switched that, that part of the brain. In fact, in our, even in our volunteers, the more that part of the brain was switched off, the better people felt two weeks later. And so based on that, we've now got funding from the Medical Research Council to do a trial using psilocybin to treat depression. It hasn't responded to other drugs. So there you have it. You know, you, at last, after 40 years, someone's researched a drug and discovered not only how it works, but also opened up a new therapeutic avenue. And some of you may have seen this program. Did any of you see it, the Channel 4 program? Some of you saw it. And um, this was the first ever MDMA imaging study in the UK. It was funded by Channel 4. I could not get funding from this from the Medical Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, or other charities. They said it was just too controversial. Channel 4 funded the study, part of which was filmed, but in part of it was a, a, a pure independent scientific study. And we did it because we were interested in understanding why this drug is pro-social and why it might be useful for PTSD. And the paradox is this, that that study was very interesting. It underpinned a trial we're about to set up, if we can get funding to look at it in PTSD. But if that trial is successful, no, almost no doctor in this country will be able to use it. Because to use it, you have to have a Schedule One license. And only four hospitals in this country have that license. And to get the license takes a year and costs about £6,000. So you can see the problem with the law in terms of developing new treatments. It's the, the hurdles are immense. Now, there are many very sensible and simple ways we can do, make progress in relation to drugs. They're here. You can, we should endorse harm reduction. The law about drugs should be about reducing harm, not about enforcing moral positions. We should get politics back out of decision-making. The ACMD should be fully independent. We should accept the fact that young people like to experiment, but we should protect them from harm at that point. And the biggest harm we can do to a young person's career is giving him a criminal record. We should remove possessions for personal use, like countries like Portugal have done with a great deal of success, and also economic benefit. We should actually find out whether drug classification does anything anyway. Changing the law without following up, following it up in terms of evidence gathering is, is I think, um, almost immoral. New Zealand is going to do something fascinating. New Zealand is going to bring in a drug classification for legal highs where the onus will be on the seller to show it's safe. They realize they cannot continue to ban drugs. They haven't got the resources to ban drugs. There are an infinite number of drugs. 
So what they're saying is if you want to sell it, the law is going to go through quite soon. If you want to sell a drug, show us it's safe, relatively safe, and we will allow you to sell it. So this is going to be the first country in the world which actually has a kind of rational approach to new drugs. And also, we've got to get rid of these ridiculous restrictions which are stifling research. There are other things we could do. These are a bit more radical. Uh, we could do drug testing. We allow people to take, know what they're taking. You know, that would actually help them make rational decisions. But when I said to the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, I'd like to invite over the Dutch experts on this to just to talk to us, she said, no. We do not want to know the facts about drugs. We rather live in our prejudice. Neuroscience could make a synthetic alcohol. I could, with maybe half a million pounds, make a completely safe alcohol that not only would be safe, wouldn't be addictive, and you'd have an antidote. We could go upstairs on the fifth floor, we could all have a nice time. I could take the antidote and drive home. That's completely within the realms of modern science. Why isn't anyone doing it? Because the people with the money are terrified it would be made illegal. And we can make safe variants of stimulants like MDMA if we wanted. The science could do a lot to reduce the harms of drugs, but the law precludes it. And I'm going to finish with this final question, because this is the question that re the, the people in New Zealand are wrestling with, and I had a discussion with their legislators last month on this. How, what's the level of harm a society can accept for a drug? What's the appropriate comparators for harms? Well, people do very dangerous, crazy things. Um, hopefully none of you do, but some of you will. Some of your friends will. Some of your friends will die doing these things. We don't stop them doing it. If we really wanted to save lives, the most efficient way is just to ban ice climbing in the Alps. Just say, no, you can't climb those ice, those ice mountains because 100 people a year die doing that. The reason we don't is because that's their right. And sometimes we even, we even you know, celebrate their achievements. But it is an arbitrary decision. Peanuts, new scientists, when I, was, when I wrote my horse riding article, I'll tell you about it in a minute, they, they wrote this editorial pointing out that peanuts are more dangerous than ecstasy. Why don't we ban those? This is the one I'm quite interested in if you're suntanning because it's one that most people don't think about. But the reason people like to get suntanned is because sunlight releases hormones in the brain, a bit like MDMA does, oxytocin. So not only does it make you look brown and kill your spots, but it also makes you feel good. So lots of people do it. But sunbeds are now killing lots of people. Melanoma, which is very often terminal cancer, kills over 10,000 people a year. We don't stop people going out in the sun. We don't stop sunbeds. We actually now are regulating their use to people under the age of 18, if we can. But you might say, well, you know, why don't we do that? That would be a much more efficient thing to stop than methotrope. I've argued for a long time a society which actually makes money selling a toxin like alcohol to people should at the very least allow people who make a reasoned choice to take a less toxic drug like cannabis access to it. I, mean, it's, I think it's immoral to force people who want to be intoxicated to use alcohol. And then there's horse riding, and I want to share this with you because it's, a, it's an interesting story. A patient of mine came to see me. She was 37 about two years before, she'd fallen off a horse. She smashed the front of her head in. And it had changed her personality, as it often does when you smash your part of your brain. And she became very disinhibited. And she, she uh, lost her job. She lost her husband. She lost her children. And she just 
had no ability to control her activity. She was so impulsive. She came to me because I'm experienced in using drugs to treat people with brain damage. And I put her on, on an illegal drug. I put her on amphetamine because amphetamine often helps regulate extreme impulsivity, like in ADHD. And it helped her a bit, but it was never going to put back the dead bits of the brain. But I got interested in horse riding, and I read around it, and I discovered, actually, it caused quite a lot of deaths, spinal transections, brain damage, all well-recognized. I discovered that the Italians even have a phrase for it. Uomo a cavallo, sepultura aperta. Apologies to any Italians in the audience. But that's how it translates, I hope. Um, so it, we've known for a long time horse riding is a really dangerous phenomenon, behavior, but we don't control it. So I decided to write a paper comparing horse riding with ecstasy. And I invented this term, equacy, the equine addiction syndrome. And um, it was actually a very effective paper because some of my friends in Europe said I got to the second page before I realized you were, it wasn't a drug. It wasn't actually horse riding. And um, <laughs> horse riding is addictive. And in fact, if you compare the harms of horse riding and ecstasy, you can see they, horse riding probably kills more people each year. More, it's probably got a higher mortality rate per, per percentage of people using it, etc. I mean, I'm very interested in the green issue because, you know... Ecstasy tablets don't give out methane, unlike horses. And, uh, and as, I, as I like to say to the police, you know, wouldn't it be so much simpler for you? It'd be much easier to stop a horse being smuggled into a club than an MDMA. <laughs> well, that article, which has now been downloaded over 7,000 times and created absolute hysteria when it first came out. I'm being um, stalked by a number of organizations. One of them is called Europe Against Drugs. Anyone from Europe Against Drugs here? That's unusual. They're normally in the audience taking notes. Um, and uh, they rang the Home Secretary up. I, they knew it was published before I did. And, uh, and the Home Secretary rang me, that's her, Jackie Smith, um, one, mon the Monday afternoon before she was going into the house to defend her using her sister's bedroom as her main residence. We think there might have been some relationship between the two. She might have been, this might have been a smoke screen. But anyway, she rang me up and she's, she's very angry and said I was crossing the boundary from evidence to policy. And, uh, she, and uh, being a good psychiatrist, I managed to edge her around to my conversation. So eventually we got to this. You can't compare harms from an illegal activity with an illegal one. Why not? Because one's illegal. Why is it illegal? Because it's harmful. Don't we need to compare harms to determine if it should be illegal? I put the things in. You can't compare harms! And, and I thought, this is bonkers. You know, so here we have one of the most powerful women in the government not understanding logic. And um, so then I started speaking to some of my other friends in, in, in government, and they said, no, no, we all think like her. If things are illegal, then you can't think about them the same way as if they're not illegal. And that was a kind of terrifying insight. That I, <laughs> and it, it proved to me that one thing for sure is this, criminalizing people is the most dangerous thing you can do because if, if none of us can really think logically about someone with a criminal record. I mean, if I get someone, a CV with someone with a criminal record, it, it's, a, you know, it's a very easy decision to not to take them on board. Criminalization is almost always more dangerous than the drug. And I can think of only one exception to that rule, and that was a man called Andy Coulson who was taken on with a criminal record. But, of course... He knew an awful lot about the opposition and uh, 
which of course is why he was taken on. Oh, he's gone anyway, isn't it? So what's the current imperative? Well, we need to redo the Mysteries of Drugs Act 1971. It's 40 years old, it's out of date, it's wrong. And we've got to do it without politicians being involved because politicians, as Callaghan knew back in the 60s, politicians will always get it wrong on drugs. We've got to facilitate research into new treatments because we haven't had any major advances in the treatment of depression in the last 50 years. And we should remove criminal penalties for personal use because criminalization does more harm than the drug. And when I went to start working for the government in about 1999 in the the ACMD, I kind of thought that this was the underpinning principle. In a freedom-loving society, no conduct by rational adults should be criminalized unless it's harmful to others. And I realize now that that actually is an aspiration rather than an underpinning principle. But hopefully there's enough of you young people in the audience to turn it into a principle in your lifetime. And I will finish now by saying that you can sack me, but you can't shut me up. And uh, I've set up the Independent Scientific Committee. Most of the scientists on the ACMD resigned and joined me. We have the only truly independent website telling the truth about drugs in the world. It's not funded by government. It's not funded by industry. It's not funded by people who are pro-drugs. That's where you can read the truth about drugs on my blogs. And... This is what you should buy your parents for Christmas. I don't care how old you are, it's a good read. It's got lots of anecdotes, and uh, they will learn something from it. So thank you very much for listening. I'll take questions. Cheers. Thank you. If you would like to ask some questions, raise your hand. Wait for somebody to pass the microphone. Gentlemen in the center. What if I sit down? Why don't you? Um, Shall I call on people for you? Yeah. Yeah. They'll pass to the man in the center. We'll get to you as you can. Wait for the microphone to come to you. And the next will be the gentleman here on the left. Hello. Hello there. Um, Thank you very much for your lecture, uh, Professor Nutt. Um, I am an alcoholic and an addict uh, in recovery. For those of you who are not sure about the terminology, that means that I don't drink and I don't take drugs and haven't done for about five years. I have a lot of friends in the graveyard from drink and drugs. I went to a funeral yesterday of a uh, a 57-year-old friend of 40 years. Uh, Alcohol got uh, him. Um, one of the things that I've become aware of is that this is not a uh, this is an extremely complicated subject. Uses of alcohol and uses of drugs involve uh, all sorts of things to do with one's own personal upbringing, one's socioeconomic factors, as well as one's physiology and, and stuff like that. And that um, any way forward on this subject is likely to be quite complex. I myself am quite agnostic about it, perhaps inclined towards decriminalisation. What worries me very much about, uh, about your lecture is that I hear in it a mirror image of the Daily Mail uh, that, you, that, you, uh, that you decry. I see you taking exactly the same simplification of a subject, which, as I say, is extremely uh, uh, complex. I don't think that, my, from my experience, both personal and of reading stuff, I don't think we're ever going to empiricize this subject. It's a complicated one that's going to going to be best done by looking at what happens in other countries and moving slowly forward, very slowly and very cautiously and without hysteria, which I'm afraid both the Daily Mail and your position um, uh, uh, exacerbate. 
today. Well, I hope I wasn't hysterical. I thought I was rational and reasonable, but if I was hysterical, come and correct me afterwards. So, the, yeah, I agree with you. We should move towards sensible policies. They should be based on evidence from other countries. I showed you some there. There's lots more written about in my book. Um, and, and in essence, what we need is tighter regulation of alcohol and tobacco and somewhat more rational regulation of, uh, of other drugs. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, um, thank you very much. Um, following on from, I think, the exceptionally pertinent uh, points raised by the gentleman just now, um, my, my question is based on my um, career in customs and excise uh, at a time when um, it still had lead responsibility for anti-drug yeah. smuggling. And yeah. certainly I'm aware that... Uh, Many law enforcers of all um, groups um, recognise that out-and-out prohibition is, yeah. is not the answer. Um, and I've all, I can also, from experience, say that when something, whatever it is, is an inconvenient truth, the burden of proof to prove that is raised to a very high if not um, impossible uh, burden. Mm. Um, we had a case of a member of staff murdered and some very, very embarrassing and inconvenient facts about that were just simply not mentioned, despite the fact that they were in the public domain. My question is relating to your point about um, the licensing and the limitations that caused. Is there any opportunity for bringing in big pharma to put pressure for a relaxation of re licensing to improve research and development of non-harmful or much less harmful equivalents of some of the, the drugs yeah, we no, well, have? Of course there would be, but Big Pharma, big pharma is, is almost as hysterical about drugs as the Daily Mail. And they actually very often refuse to use the drugs of theirs which could be anti-addiction drugs in addiction. It, so, and I know this from personal experience. I used to work for a company called Reckoning Coleman that invented buprenorphine, Subutex. And uh, it took them 10 years to accept it might have utility in addiction. So 10 years of wasted effort. So Big Pharma is like the public. It's, it sees drugs and drug users as bad, evil, noxious people. And so that isn't... I don't think Big Pharma is... An, it's, it's a, it would be a solution if Big Pharma were to change. But it, it's difficult to change it. I, I agree with you, but I've spent my, most of my life trying to get Big Pharma to, to buy into this, and they don't, because... Maybe now things are different. Maybe now the market is tougher. Maybe they are going to get more interested. But up till, up till now, they've seen, they've seen it as too difficult. And they've seen it as contaminating their brand. Yeah? Hi. Um, you mentioned the potential of creating an alcohol substitute yeah. that would have all the benefits but none of the harms. Yeah, um, and you said that the, the industry wouldn't give you the money to research that. But I'm just wondering why, because I would buy that. Well, of course you... Well, would you give me that? Well, maybe we're thinking about crowdsourcing. Maybe that's the way forward, actually. No. And the reason is very straightforward. The reason is because they say, how can you guarantee it will not be banned? So, look, I've shown you, you know, what will happen if the drug gets on the market. Um, well, it, 
it'll be sold. So, we, so, so, okay, I set up my first stall outside here, right? And I start selling it to you. Some of you get drunk. Some of you are rude to a policeman. The policeman will, will then say that this drug is causing public disorder. The ACMD will review it and say, oh, yes, it causes public disorder, and then we'll ban it. And even though it's causing less public disorder than alcohol. And that's the problem. The, drug, the way the drug laws are constructed at present, they mitigate completely, <laughs> militate completely against any kind of rational change. And that's why they've got to be changed. Yeah, well, I think you should get both two microphones going simultaneously to speed things up. Yeah, we've got two people in the front. Why don't we get them two sides? Hi, I was really interested to hear what you had to say about the um, the enormous social impact that alcohol has been having, and um, I'd be really interested in well the kind of controls that you um, are actually advocating because I think you, on the one hand. You have like the government's current current approach, which is like looking at minimum pricing per unit, which seems like pretty much a drop in the ocean compared to um, well, what the what the problem is. And on the other hand, you have countries like Iceland, who have uh, you know alcohol has to be sold. Anything alcohol above two percent has to be sold sold in a state store has to close after nine, which is pretty inconvenient to those of us who enjoy alcohol. Um, so I'd want to know, like, what where do you come down on any of the side of the fence, and like what would be would Sure, okay, approach. so, yeah, I've, obviously I've thought a lot about that. And so uh, the first thing to say is that minimum pricing does work. It, it's been shown to work, and it will work. And it will work m- much better than uh, you think because the damage from alcohol is exponential. Uh, and so at the heavy drinking end, mortality goes up so fast. And if you reduce consumption even by 20 to 30%, which is what minimum pricing will do, you will have probably half deaths. So, so it will work, and it, we know it works. Um, the model I like, I like the Swedish model, which is like the Icelandic model, which is essentially that people drink because they want to rather than as a reflex. So in Sweden, you can only you can, you can get to get wine and spirits. You have to go to a, a state shop, which is only open for certain hours, and nine to five. And Saturday, it's recently started opening Saturday mornings. So you have to make a conscious decision in anticipation to going at alcohol. So you can't go at 10 at night when you're stoned or drunk and get more. And the worst thing of all in this country now is is the way all all in universities all over this country, students can now ring at any time, day or night, and have alcohol delivered, even though they might be dying of alcohol poisoning, they can still get more. This this dial-up takeaway is is a significant health problem. So the the Swedish model is fascinating for several reasons. The first is... The Swedish government is the largest buyer of wine in the world. The Swedish wine stores sell some of the best wine in the world. Uh, and Swedes drink half what we drink in terms of absolute alcohol. We drink about 11 litres a year of absolute alcohol, and the Swedes drink about five. The Swedes have a third of the healthcare harms of alcohol as we have, and that's because of this exponential. So it's a great model. It's been proven to work, and there's no reason why. And it used to be what we had. The reason we have a lot more drink-related drink damage now is because in the 1970s we loosened up access to alcohol. We took it out of off-license and gave it to supermarkets, and then now we have the, the second rise has been due to the, the cynical ploy of selling super-strength lagers and ciders uh, to, to young people. And those two changes in, in behavior have led to this massive increase in, in alcohol-related deaths. I just wondered about um, drug 
um, substitution therapy yeah. and about what your stance on that was, if it helps or hinders the step towards legalising illegal sort of, say, methadone, for example. Well, no, I mean, you, you, yeah, so opiate substitution therapy, you know, is a hugely effective <coughs> therapy, unquestionably. It reduces deaths, it reduces intravenous infections, uh, it reduces crime, you know, you know, at all merit, on all levels, it works. So I'm, I'm totally supportive of it. I just wondered in terms of um, getting government on side when you're talking about legal and legal, you know, you're saying about the horse, you can't compare legal to illegal when methadone is both legal and illegal. Well, it's, in, it's, it's legal always illegal in, in the sense that as a medical product, doctors still have to treat it differently to, say, paracetamol. You have, to, you have to write a different kind of prescription, uh, which is actually one of the reasons why people don't use it so much. And that's even more important for drugs like uh, amphetamines or Ritalin for ADHD, where the same, rules, the same rules apply to me prescribing methadone as prescribing Ritalin. It is ridiculous. But, you know, because all drugs are... Once in the drug's illegal, rationality disappears from government control. We have a woman in upstairs yep. in the first row. Upstairs, upstairs, great. Hello, Hello. woman in the first row upstairs. Yeah. Well, shall I take hers because she's got the microphone down here? Go yeah, that's fine. Go, Go ahead. Um, I'm dubious about your argument that the Icelandic or Swedish model would yeah. work so effectively because yeah. Scotland don't sell off-license alcohol after 11 o'clock, yet mm. they have some of the most dangerous drinking issues there. Um, the, Scots, so, the, Scots, the Scots have this big problem because they drink more, and they drink more yeah, than they so get it from supermarkets. Which I would argue that it's the culture yeah. of binge drinking that's the issue and not necessarily that law that would change it. No, no, no. The culture of binge drinking is a significant element, but the culture of binge drinking is encouraged by cheap alcohol. There is no question about that. Genetically, Swedes, Scots, and Icelandics are pretty similar. It, yeah, no, not it's the way in which alcohol is sold and... Yeah, the Swedes don't sell super-strength lagers. The Scots do, and they sell it in supermarkets. And people but they do regulate that. They hmm? regulate it more than we do in Scotland. They don't regulate super-strength. They're beginning to. They don't currently. You can still go into a supermarket in Scotland at 7 in the morning and buy two litres of strong cider and go home and swill that all day because you haven't got a job. And that's what happens, and that's why your liver gets destroyed by the time you're 25. Okay, going upstairs and then the man in green downstairs. Um, I actually have like two questions, but no, I recently. Okay, well, I recently lived in Sweden, and I actually found that there was a huge problem with alcohol um, over there because half the people were teetotal and the other half just didn't even know how to drink alcohol and were absolutely paralytic when they went out. Yeah, and that is the danger. That is the danger of your personal experience. So undoubtedly, Swedes get drunk, just like. Maybe you don't, because maybe in Britain you, you live in a different culture to where you live in Sweden. But we know, I mean, the, the, so, the demographic evidence in Sweden is as what I've told you. There's a third less alcohol harm, and that's driven by the re regulator access. Of course, some Swedes kill themselves with alcohol, just like some Brits do. And, but uh, in population terms, there's a real benefit. Now, whether you could ever bring that into the UK is an interesting question. As I say, what we have done is we've let it happen. We've, we've let the alcohol industry take away the, the kind of controls we used to have that used to protect us in the 50s and 60s. Uh, maybe you could never bring them back, but at least you could work in that direction, and certainly you should be stopping it getting worse. 
Matt Green. My question is about the purity um, of yeah. drugs available to recreational users, yeah. um, depending on whether they're legal or illegal. Mm. You've mentioned a lot about methadone mm. um, and how it reduced cocaine death. Was mm. that due in any part to the cocaine being you know, more toxic because it was going across so many international borders and yeah, that's a being good cut with so, so many different things? The answer is partly that. The problem with cocaine is you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. And if, you ha if you're used to taking, you know, getting something which is actually 90% rat poison and then you take a hit which is you know, only 10% rat poison, you overdose. Uh, whereas with methadrone, you knew what you were getting. It was basically you know, if you, you know, 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams was a reasonable hit. So, you know, so there's that, uh, the, but they, the safety of methadrone is more than just that it's clean. It's also less potent. And I kind of like, you know, basically, most, most, it's kind of, it's arbitrary, but most drug users think of things in grams. Most people wouldn't take more than a gram at a hit. Or a, and if you, a gram of methadrone won't kill you, a gram of cocaine might, and so that's why it's intrinsically safer. Okay. Front and centre. Um, changing tack a bit, uh, and I don't want to paraphrase you, but what makes you believe that government should be rational or are in any sense rational. <laughs> well, the whole point is, I think, the point is, the reason we have scientific advisory committees is because governments aren't rational. But what happened with the last government was that it decided, it thought it knew the science better than the scientists. So we had these remarkable statements, Gordon Brown saying, skunk is lethal. Now, Gordon Brown said that because he said it about a week after he'd done a deal with Paul Dacre that the Daily Mail would support him in the aborted election if the Labour Party did three things, one of which was recriminalise or regrade cannabis from C to B. So Brown started justifying that regrading by saying skunk was lethal. So just like we had before him. Just on a different issue. <laughs> Rationality is different. Oh, well... Yeah, I suppose the difference between rationality and honesty, I guess. Yes, maybe. Okay. Sorry, just to, to follow up my colleague Ali's question to you. you. Towards the end there, you were arguing, and I understand why you get to that position, that we should leave this to experts, that there's no role for politics in drugs policy. Now, sort of two questions, one of which is a very quick one, which is, do you really mean that? And B, if you do... Is that the end of the Department of Health? And do you extend that to every other area of health policy? Uh, what is the role of politics? Well, I think the first thing to say is the Department of Health is extraordinarily rational in comparison with the Department of the Home Office, absolutely, unquestionably. I mean, most DH decisions do at least have some evidence base, and they're not simply political. I mean, I think the dismembering of the NHS, which is happening at present, is it's the one exception. But, I, you know, well, that's been driven beyond the department. Um, uh, what was the first... I can't remember what the first question was. Sorry, I'm getting tired. Uh, what was your first question? Well, it was all, what was the role of politics in? Yeah, there was, yeah, I mean, so my view... If you heard the interview with Jackie Smith last week, politics is what you do when you don't have evidence, I think. OK, Could, we have somebody upstairs at the microphone. Uh, hello. What do you think of the Dutch system of keeping things technically illegal but tolerating them and then making them illegal in practice, if, when things get out of hand. This is the cannabis policy in yeah, the Netherlands. So I, th I mean, the, the, the Dutch... I have a lot of time for the Dutch. The Dutch have been both rational and courageous. The Dutch realised that cannabis was a safer drug than heroin, so it, uh, 
It, it also realised 25 years ago that Dutch youth would want to use cannabis like youth in any other country in Europe. So it decided to allow the Dutch kids to use cannabis in coffee shops, so avoiding their need to go to dealers, therefore not being offered heroin, and therefore not becoming addicted to heroin. And it worked. They separated the markets, and the Netherlands has a much lower use of heroin in young people than we have. Uh, Completely sensible rational policy, but a courageous policy, because for the last 25 years, the UN Office of Drug Control has been trying to get them to to back down, and they haven't. So it was a brave and uh, an effective thing to do. And it shows that you can apply logic. And have you now evaluated the um, separate issue of uh, the link between cannabis and onset of mental health problems? Yeah, well, you know, this is every 30 years, someone wants to be hard on cannabis, so they reinvent cannabis causing schizophrenia. And it started in the 1890s when there was this concern that was investigated by the Indian Hemp Commission which showed it didn't. And then in the 1930s, it was evaluated. 1950s, the American Academy of Medicine evaluated it. And now we've evaluated it, and it doesn't. I mean, the confusion is this. For those of you who have never been stoned, if, you, if the, being stoned on cannabis is the nearest most people ever get to being psychotic, in fact, it is being psychotic. So if you ask people, have you ever had these funny experiences, and they say yes, and you say, have you ever taken cannabis, they say yes then, of course, people who've experienced psychotic symptoms more have used cannabis because that's what cannabis does, but it doesn't cause schizophrenia. Okay, down in the front, and then the next will be a woman in orange upstairs. If I could draw, draw three things that you said together. You, you mentioned the impact of targets, yeah. the police, and the impact of, uh, of, of incentivising them to arrest. Yeah. You talked about minimum pricing uh, of alcohol, yeah. and then you talked about the irrationality of government. One of the things that, that, whilst I'm sure you're absolutely right about minimum pricing, the fact that there's a, there's a double-edged sword to that, that by imposing minimum pricing, it then becomes a revenue stream. Mm-hmm. I just worry that perhaps, whilst that might be a good thing as a deterrent, once it becomes part of government revenue, the motivation for its level might well be influenced rather by budgetary considerations than health issues. It might be, but how could I be even more? Like even more money. And let me, th- this is a really interesting question because, so I didn't show the graph and I have time to show you it here, but if you, I showed you the mortality from liver disease going up and up and up, right? Now, I have another graph for France where it's gone down and down and down from a different base. So when I started in medicine in 1972, cirrhosis was the French disease alongside syphilis. You know. And um, <laughs> Someone came into guys with cirrhosis. You all queued up to examine them because we didn't see it. The French realised in the, in the 80s that this was a huge problem. So they brought in new policies. And essentially, the French got rid of cheap wine. And they reduced their mortality. They, they, so they have 50% of the mortality from liver disease than we have. So they completely turned it around. They have left road traffic deaths. They have much less damage to the fetus with alcohol than we have. And the real winner is that their alcohol industry is more profitable because all the cheap wine is now quality wine and, it, and it was sold to England. But, but, but so that it's been a complete, it's in a total vir- virtuous circle. You, what you need to do to reduce the damage of alcohol is make it more expensive but better quality and also encourage people to drink in pubs rather than drink at home in front of the TV. Before we go to the cheap wine at our free reception, um, two more questions. Um, hello, Professor Nutt. We've met a number of times. I'm Andrea. 
And I've also studied here um, 10 years ago, uh, social policy and planning. And basically, as a result of my own experiences, to this day I'm still burying my friends and cremating them. We're doing another one on Friday. Um, I have come to the conclusion that the only way this thing is going to change is that in terms of legislation and law and policy is that basically uh, the numbers will be so enormous of those of us who live with addiction issues that, you know, they just won't be able to afford us anymore. And that will be the bottom line. And that's also what I saw in the international drug policy reform movement because actually the truth was that until AIDS became a threat to quote-unquote normal society, this government, these governments had absolutely no interest in actually really, really making any kind of change in social policy and promoting harm reduction. So, frankly, when people are jumping up and down and celebrating with or without alcohol what's going on in Latin America at the moment with the commissions and the president of Uruguay, you know, promoting uh, deregulation, excuse me, increased regulation on drug policy, I myself am not feeling that hopeful ultimately because I think, yes, in time, there will definitely, definitely be a change. You know, 16 states or 15 states in the states already have uh, medical marijuana effectively uh, available to anybody who needs it with ID. But the fact of the matter is we're now in a situation where, you know, millions of people around the world are just dying off. And I think this is the deliberate policy. And anybody who tries to tell me anything, any otherwise, is... Well, probably wasting their time. Thank well, you. Okay, but and let me just say one other thing, because I think you touched on something that is quite important, but not, again, verbalised much. There is an enormous industry in the anti-drug field. And if you get a chance, see this new film by Eugene Jarecki. It's called The House I Live In. And it explains why America incarcerates five times greater proportion of its population in any country on earth. And why most of that's around drugs is because there's a lot of money in doing it. And, and that is a, that's an unspoken economy, which I think could, you know, there's a, something of a danger of us slipping in that direction. In that, you know, the, the, so there's a, as well as the drinks industry pressurizing us into poisoning ourselves with alcohol, there's another industry pressurizing us to be hard on drugs and put people in prison for drugs because they make money out of building prisons and and policing prisons, etc. Last question. Yeah, I just have a comment and a question. The first the comment refers to the, to the discussion we had before about the whole alcohol policy. Yeah. I think one thing that hasn't been mentioned, apart from avail um, availability and pricing, is also um, being tougher on marketing, because this is where um, totally. uh, alcohol industry does, um, like, totally. does a lot of bad things. Yeah. Um, but my question to you is more... Um, goes into education field, yeah. which uh, policy is more effective than education, but we shouldn't forget about it. So how, um, how would you deal with um, yeah, communicating mm -hmm. this to, for example, young people? We've seen young people sure, are the sure. sensation seekers, mm -hmm. so you still have to be careful on how to communicate this. No, totally. So, yeah, the, um, so why do we still allow alcohol marketing? It's because our politicians are largely in the either directly or indirectly, in the pockets of the drinks industry. How much does it cost to get a politician to take no interest in alcohol? To avoid, you know, how do you, you know, to basically ignore the issue. Well, I reckon it costs £80. And the reason I've come to this conclusion is this. That there are many clubs in Parliament 
but the most popular club is the beer club. 80%, I think, of all politicians sign up to the beer club. What do you get if you're a member of the beer club? Well, all you get is two cases of quality beer at Christmas. I reckon that's about 80 quid. But I think that's enough for people just to not even bother to think about controlling alcohol. I think it's that trivial. In terms of education, I I totally agree with you. The problem with a Misuse of Drugs Act, which which is actually corrupted, as ours is at present, is it has no educational value. And therefore, kids make their own minds up. And, and it actually causes more harm because, I mean, really, you know, if, if, if children don't believe anything you say because what, you, what they see, is, much of what they see is lies, then, then you've lost the argument to start with. And, and also there's another, another aspect to it which a couple of journalists have written about rather, rather poignantly recently. I also think it's morally wrong <coughs> for people to die taking a drug when it's another drug. And that's what happened at Alexander Palace last year when two people died supposedly of taking ecstasy. But they hadn't. They'd taken a drug called PMMA, which is ten times more potent. And that's why the Dutch have testing, because the Dutch think, like I do, it's morally wrong to let your kids die of it accidentally. And we should have testing, and that would save lives. And it would also be educational. All right. And for more education, the book and the book signing is available on the fifth floor, along with the reception. Thank you all for being here. Thank you.